Good evening, welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Aaron Bastani and we have a fantastic show in store for you tonight. We're talking about renegade bailiffs who present themselves as police officers. A very strange story involving a trans woman in the Mail Online. But first, we're talking about the big story of the day. Rishi Sunak's new deal, the Windsor Agreement, which relates to Northern Ireland and Britain's departure from the European Union. Tonight, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you? I'm excited because I never get to hang out with you in virtual space, Aaron, only in person, which is somehow less appealing. First, the Windsor Agreement. Today, Sunak was out and about in Northern Ireland, advertising the benefits of the deal. If we get the executive back up and running here, Northern Ireland is in the unbelievably special position, unique position in the entire world, European continent, in having privileged access, not just to the UK home market, which is enormous, fifth biggest in the world, but also the European Union single market. Nobody else has that. No one. Only you guys, only here. And that is the prize. I can tell you, when I go around the world and talk to businesses, they, that, you know, they know that. They're like, well, that's interesting. If you guys get this sorted, then we want to invest in Northern Ireland because nowhere else does that exist. That's like the world's most exciting economic zone. Now, before we go on, I've seen many reactions to that video. One included my own, which was, yes, that Rishi Sunak does indeed look like a children's TV presenter. But what we were seeing constantly was he's talking about the status quo ante, the fact that Britain used to enjoy the benefits of both being uh, a domestic market, but being in the European Union too. What I found interesting was actually, this is what was being sold as Brexit. Nobody was saying until just several weeks before the referendum in 2016 that we wouldn't have full access to the single market. So while I'm seeing lots of stuff on Twitter about how stupid Rishi, he sounds like a Remainer, actually for me, the big takeaway is he's talking about what Brexiteers were saying in 2016, except it's not for the whole UK, it's just for Northern Ireland. But anyway, the Windsor Agreement. What's in the deal? First, anything destined for Northern Ireland from the UK will travel there as part of a green lane, meaning hardly any security checks. Anything that could cross the border and enter the EU single market will travel through a separate red lane. Second, the UK government will set VAT and excise for Northern Ireland instead of the EU. And third, there's a new mechanism called the Stormont Break. This gives Northern Irish politicians the power to block new EU rules and goods. But the European Court of Justice remains the final arbiter of any disputes about EU law in Northern Ireland. That's because the region essentially remains within the single market. The Winter Framework has so far received a pretty warm response. Sunak presented some of the details of the deal to Parliament last night. After weeks of negotiations today, we have made a decisive breakthrough. The Windsor Framework delivers free-flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom. It protects Northern Ireland's place in our union and it safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. By achieving all this, it preserves the delicate balance inherent in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And Mr Speaker, it does what many said could not be done, removing thousands of pages of EU laws and making permanent, legally binding changes to the Protocol Treaty itself. That is the breakthrough we have made. Those 
are the changes we will deliver, and now is the time to move forward as one united kingdom. Yeah. Mr Speaker, before I turn to the details, let us remind ourselves why this matters. It matters because at the heart of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and the reason it's endured for a quarter of a century, is equal respect for the aspirations and identities of all communities and all its three strands. But the Northern Ireland Protocol has undermined that balance. How can we say the Protocol protects the Belfast Good Friday Agreement when it has caused the institutions of that agreement to collapse? So in line with our legal responsibilities, we are acting today to preserve the balance of that agreement and chart a new way forward for Northern Ireland. I pay tribute to our European friends for recognising the need for change, particularly President von der Leyen, my predecessors for laying the groundwork for today's agreement. <laughs> my right honourable friends, the Foreign and Northern Ireland Secretaries, for their perseverance yeah. in, finally, in finally persuading to the EU to do what it spent years refusing to do, to rewrite the treaty and replace it with a radical, legally binding new framework. Now that jeering there was aimed at Boris Johnson, who was conspicuously absent from the chamber last night. Though that hasn't stopped him interfering with the deal's progress. Politics Home reports this. The former Prime Minister, whose own deal on post-Brexit trade in the region had led to months of deadlock, contacted the DUP on Monday to urge the party to think hard before declaring its support for the agreement between the EU and UK, Politics Home understands. Johnson spoke to the DUP after a report this afternoon claimed that the party, led by Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, was preparing to accept the deal. Donaldson has said that his party continues to scrutinise the deal and has neither accepted or rejected it at this stage. The disastrous Northern Ireland Protocol was part of Johnson's oven-ready Brexit. His solution to its problems was the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, remember that? Which would have licensed the EU, the UK rather, to unilaterally scrap parts of the treaty it had signed with the EU. That bill was officially put in the bin last night too, so not a great day for Boris Johnson. Agreement from the DUP to the terms of the deal is thought to be critical for its success, as well as restoring power sharing in Northern Ireland. The DUP has been boycotting Stormont since February last year, blocking Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill from becoming First Minister, ostensibly in protest over the Northern Ireland Protocol. But DUP MP Ian Paisley Jr., son of the former party leader, had some reservations. There's a number of issues which are very, very important, and one cannot underestimate the fact that Her Majesty's His Majesty's Government and uh, Rishi Sunak has uh, worked extremely hard to try and move things uh, in a climate when we were told there would be not an inch, not a single dot or comma would be changed in the existing protocol. And it now turns out, well, actually, it can be changed. Has it been changed sufficiently? Does it meet our seven tests? Obviously, we're going to continue to assess the legal framework. I think it's important that we do look at the um, legal issues which come forward. But I think it falls some way short 
in satisfying those tests. That, 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 that's my gut instinct. Uh, and I want to be positive about it. I want it to try and find somewhere that would allow us to, to see change. But my gut instinct is that it falls somewhere short. And therefore, whilst the Prime Minister continues to have a protocol effectively that will be still in operation, that will effectively still see ECJ rule in Northern Ireland, that will still see us subject to single market rules as opposed to fully UK rules. Unfortunately, that means that power sharing does not look like it's coming back anytime soon. And so uh, the Prime Minister staked an awful lot of uh, 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 all his eggs in one basket, hoping that he was going to get the, this uh, power sharing deal back in place. I, I don't think that is the case. I think that that must be worrying for him. But we will look at the legal text and we will study it thoroughly. And I, I know my party and my party leader will want to give a, a thorough answer. But my gut instinct is that. Gut instinct. Basically, I haven't read the text yet, uh, but I've pretty made up my mind and uh, I don't like it. Now, the DUP is set to convene a meeting of its senior leadership, possibly as soon as Saturday, though it could take weeks for them to reach a verdict on the deal. Sinn Féin's leader and Northern Ireland's first minister-designate, Michelle O'Neill, welcomed the development. I welcome the fact that a deal has been done. Um, we've always said that it was possible to have a deal. We've always said that with pragmatism, um, solutions could be found. All political parties need to be sitting around the executive table taking decisions that impact on people's lives. That's where we should be today. There shouldn't be any delays in that. Vincent, we have a health service in crisis. We have public sector workers out on the picket line. Where we need to be is making politics work and standing up for the people that uh, we represent collectively. And I think that's where all energies and efforts need to be now. That's where my attention's focused. That's what the public voted for in last May's election, and they deserve no less than that. I'm ready. I stand ready. My team are ready. And I need partners in which to govern. And we ask all the other political parties to be around the executive table together. Back in the House of Commons, Keir Starmer gave his backing to the framework too. I have been clear for some time that if the Prime Minister were to get an agreement with the EU, and if their agreement is in the interests of this country and Northern Ireland, then Labour would support it. Yeah. And we will stick to our word. Yeah. We will not snipe. We will not seek to play political games. And when the Prime Minister puts this deal forward for a vote, Labour will support it and vote for it. The protocol will never be perfect. It's a compromise. But I've always been clear that if implemented correctly, it is an agreement that can work in the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement. And now that it has been agreed, we all have an obligation to make it work. Even members of the European Research Group, Parliament's gang of hardcore Brexit headbangers, seem broadly supportive of the deal. Or at least they haven't yet found something they especially dislike. Jacob Rees-Mogg has a new show on GB News where he made this assessment of the framework. The deal is apparently done and Brexit is complete. It's the um, oven-ready Brexit now being cooked, I suppose, ready to be served with some gravy and some bread sauce. However, we should hold the champagne, or if you prefer, English sparkling wine, for now. Ursula von der Leyen claims the European Court of Justice will continue to have the final say on single market issues, yet Rishi Sunak claims there will be no border in the Irish Sea. So how are these two positions reconcilable? Well, it really comes down to what the DUP make of it. Will they perceive that the people of Northern Ireland remain under the EU's laws and its regulatory system? Or will they think that this new change, the adjustment to the protocol, 
will give them what they want, because this is fundamental. Conservatives are unionists, and so we should appreciate as unionists that our single country includes those important six counties of Ireland as much as England, Scotland and Wales, and of course Somerset, which probably deserves to be its own country and one of the leading members of any union of nation states. Steve Baker is now the Northern Ireland Minister, but he was once the Tories' headbanger-in-chief. Last night, he appeared on Newsnight, and things got just a little bit bizarre. You were effectively excluded from these negotiations. You didn't really know the detail until this morning. Last night, you said you, you, could, have, you, know, you could have been on the verge of resignation. Yes. As Northern Ireland Minister, what do you think about the fact that you were excluded? Well, when I saw the Prime Minister last night, he gave me the good reason why I was not included. Which and is? it was a good and noble reason, which I am not in a position to share with you. And I hope people will understand that sometimes these things are necessary. But I actually feel regretful that I was a bear with a sore head over this. He had a good reason. And what's more, he's impressed upon me that actually, in a sense, I was present in the room uh, because he did read the papers that I gave him and they did influence what's been done. And I'm very proud of that. You, you, you're, you're emotional, Mr Baker. Uh, seven years of this cost me my mental health. The beard, the jewellery is about me, my recovery. In November 21, I had a major mental health crisis, anxiety and depression, I couldn't go on. People couldn't tell and made a big keynote speech in the afternoon. But make no mistake, holding these tigers by the tail, Brexit, Covid recovery group, net zero scrutiny group, the tax stuff we did with Conservative Way Forward, took its toll, we're all only human. And it, the way I've led rebellions, no one should have to do. And this is an important moment for me personally, because I can authentically say he's done it. If only everybody will read the text, think seriously about what an amazing achievement this is, what an incredible opportunity it provides for the people of Northern Ireland, and actually for the whole of Europe to move beyond this awful populism we've suffered. Just be sensible and grown up. Do the right thing by 1.9 million people. And the ripple effects for everybody else. You bet I'm emotional, because this book ends a seven-year chapter of my life, which I will be glad to close. Steve Baker there talking about the perils of right-wing populism. Ash, after he leaves politics, should Steve Baker become a men's mental health advocate and influencer? Well, look, why don't you let me be uncharacteristically empathetic towards Tory just for one second? I've got no doubt that being in the front line of politics, whatever party you're a member of, is anxiety-inducing. It can push people to the edge. It's a culture of long days, late nights, and for lots of members of parliament, very heavy drinking. Um, and so when it comes to the state of his mental health, he of course has empathy. However, when he talks about no one should have to lead rebellions the way that I have, you look at the issues he's speaking on. One is, of course, his role in uh, deepening the polarisation of the Brexit <clears throat> debate, which didn't just have an impact on the Conservative Party benches. It was felt by the country as a whole. And then he's talking about his work basically to scrap the net zero climate commitment by 2050, which isn't good enough to keep our planet habitable. Um, and to get rid of it would be even worse. It would be, you know, flinging ourselves headlong into the vortex of catastrophic temperature change. Um, that's where my sympathy not only ends, but I just feel like, well, you know what, if your politics is to make all of us suffer, um, why, why should we um, somehow feel sorry for you 
that in the attempt to immiserate all of us, you too have suffered. You know, like in uh, Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, he speaks briefly on the impact of torture on the French torturers in Algeria. Actually, it might have been Algeria unveiled. I don't know. One of the Franz Fanons um, talks about the impact of torture on the torturer. And you go, yeah, to do terrible things, um, uh, it, it does something to the soul. It does something to your mental health and your well-being. But the the suffering of the torturer the suffering of the tortured are not equivalents. Of course, I'm not calling Steve Baker a torturer by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying that the suffering which has been uh, caused and could be caused by the things that he espouses um, are, are greater than what he has gone through as an individual. True story from Ash. I don't like seeing anybody cry because I'm a big old softy. I'll say that. You're a nicer person than me because I couldn't feel sorry for him in the slightest. There you go, clip that up. I think the whole thing's ridiculous. It's like setting your house on fire and then go, oh my God, I no longer have a house. Well, that's kind of what happens. Uh, more important question though, really, Ash, for most people, what, what's your gut feeling about this deal? Do you think Sunak can do it? Yesterday, there was lots of optimism, lots of energy. We've had so many false dawns when it comes to Brexit. Is this time different? Well, here was the really interesting thing, and I'm not sure if you caught it. When Keir Starmer said, I'm not going to be playing political games, the you know House of Commons TV camera operator cut to Rishi Sunak and there was a grimace. And the reason why there was a grimace is because he's still not sure if he can get his party behind him in its entirety. So Keir Starmer saying you can only get through critical bits of legislation with my support is not going to be something which overall strengthens Rishi Sunak's position. Uh, it's not going to be something which makes him feel uh, safer in his role and he, like he's not going to be defenestrated anytime soon. Um, this is something which I've said again and again, and will continue to repeat that the detail of the Northern Ireland Protocol for the DUP it is an existential matter because they are really only in this game for one thing, and that is to cleave as tightly uh, to mainland Britain as possible. Um, but for the Conservative and Unionist Party, they on a mass got behind Boris Johnson's deal and the Northern Ireland Protocol. They were quite happy when Boris Johnson produced Steele and they could stand on that and take it to the electorate for the 29 general election to tell the DUP to go fuck themselves, right? They were more than delighted to do it. So the wrangling over the Northern Ireland Protocol has been, you know, yes, for some people, ideological. They want the, you know, hardest possible Brexit they can muster. But when it's politically convenient, they will absolutely jettison those unionist ideals in a heartbeat. So I think whether or not the Conservative backbenchers accept this deal, accept the mechanisms of the Stormont break, and also accept the bits of fudging which are still in place. So the uh, European Court of Justice still having the final say over single market issues, the fact that the Stormont break only applies to new EU legislation and not existing EU legislation. You know, if Boris Johnson's allies choose to make a problem of it and they do so with the full support of the DUP, well, then it might be, make things very difficult for Sunak indeed because he might pass the legislation, but it's merely a stay of execution rather than a full reprieve. Next story.
The NHS is in free fall and the scale of the crisis is only mystified by the fact we're talking about an incredibly large, complex system and people have a variety of experiences. That makes it hard to step back and see the bigger picture. But once in a while, a story comes along and captures the true extent of what is happening. The Royal College of Emergency Medicine has claimed that 23,000 excess deaths last year were linked to A&E waiting times. In other words, 23,000 people died when they otherwise would not have because they waited so long to receive care in hospital. In total, some 1.66 million people in England waited for more than 12 hours in A&E last year, up from 1 million the year before. What's more, the college only has this information after making a freedom of information request. The official NHS England data claims 347,000 patients waited 12 hours. The president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine said this, these data, while shocking, are unsurprising. For a long time, we've known that the true scale of long waits in emergency departments has been hidden. That's a big word to use, isn't it? Long waiting times are associated with serious patient harm and patient deaths. The scale shown here for 2022 is deeply distressing. This news comes after the college warned over Christmas that around 500 extra patients were dying each and every week as a result of any waiting times. 500 a week is around 25,000 a year, so the numbers add up. That previous figure was calculated based on an observational study of more than 5 million patients, which showed an increase in death after 30 days following a long any wait. Ash, this is a bombshell story that really captures the scale of calamity in the NHS, doesn't it? I mean, what we're talking about here is 12 years of underfunding, mismanagement and butchery when it comes to that long tail of the Lansley reforms, the um, internal market of the NHS, the competition between different trusts. All of these things have been absolutely disastrous. Um, and what what frightens me about these numbers is that you've got the human cost, a huge human cost in terms of loss of life, needless suffering as well as a patient. So even if you did, in the end, get the care that you need, you had to be a lot more uh, uncomfortable or distressed or in pain that you, than you otherwise ought to have been. Um, all of those things are, are worrying, but um doubly scared that the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, and his shadow health secretary was streeting, the noises that they're making about public spending, saying that they're not going to get out the big government credit card, emphasizing that they're not going to be particularly big spenders, makes me very concerned that they are either in denial or simply don't understand the scale and the depth of the crisis in the NHS because unfortunately problems which have been caused by you know nearly a decade and a half of governmental vandalism are expensive to fix and I want to be confident that any Labour government is going to put in sufficient money that they're going to fund it in the most equitable way possible by taxing wealth by taxing the wealthy and not just taking it out of uh, you know the the pay slips of 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 working people, um, and I'm not confident about that at all. Here's another story that captures the extent of the NHS crisis. Researchers have found ambulance call handlers are suffering anxiety about how many people will die before they can get help to them. 
officials from England's healthcare safety investigation branch, bit of a mouthful, the HSIB, spoke to staff working in urgent and emergency care, including A&E, NHS 111, call handling centres and the ambulance service. They asked the staff for their experiences as part of wider research into NHS care. Dispatchers told the investigation that it was common to worry about how many people are we going to kill today due to their frustration and sadness and not being able to send ambulances to patients. Many staff cried or displayed other extreme emotions as they described their working environments, their personal feelings and their own decision making, and that of others in relation to patient care and the burden of moral distress. The report also says this. In some cases, the patient was heard to be deteriorating and staff were unable to respond other than offering telephone advice. On some occasions, more than 100 Category 2 calls, which relate to issues like heart attack and stroke, were left waiting, and I quote, with no ambulances available to respond. The HSIB also found a strong link between patient safety and staff well-being. It said this, the investigation heard that while staff are trying their best to ensure safe care, harm is happening and this is affecting patient outcomes and staff well-being. Anxiety, stress, depression and other illnesses related to mental health are the most reported reasons for NHS staff sickness absence. Ash, you know it's bad when working for the emergency services is giving people mental health conditions and they're missing work as a result. Do you think this cuts through to people? Do you think that most people understand the extent of this crisis? We've just talked about potentially 23,000 excess deaths a year. We're now talking about people on NHS 111 or ambulance uh, call handlers getting depression and anxiety because they know people are dying when they shouldn't be. Yet we're in a place where, yes, I know that nurses have been on strike and we talk about the NHS, but it, it doesn't feel as big a political issue as it should be. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of deaths a year that shouldn't be happening. Am I missing something? One of the reasons why it's not as big of a political problem for the Conservatives as it really ought to be has got a lot to do with how political media functions. So you and I both know, Aaron, that political media is dictated by the interests of lobby journalists. And their job is to stick very, very close to Westminster, very, very close to Whitehall, and report on that kind of who's up, who's down. Now, why there might be what you call, you know, kind of like the blowback effect of policies which have been crafted by the government, then, um, you know, interesting, they become interesting to the lobby. That's only insofar as it either makes or mars the minister's career. So you saw that with something like the Windrush crisis. The Windrush crisis, um, the hostile environment policy crafted by Theresa May and then further implemented by Amber Rudd resulted in black Britons being wrongfully deported, some of whom to their deaths in Jamaica. And it was then sort of covered by the lobby as a clock watch. When will Amber Rudd go? And that kind of, um, you know, kind of thrill of a spectator sport and everybody's eyes being on her meant that when you had that showdown between her and Yvette Cooper, it was like people were watching a boxing match. But the actual human suffering behind that. So what happened to those uh, Windrush victims? What happened to their families? Have they gotten the compensation that they need? That then just fades back into the backdrop because it's no longer about getting a ministerial scalp. And unfortunately, when it comes to the way in which the NHS is covered 
by the lobby. It's only if they detect an opportunity to take someone down or really make it a Westminster story that they'll consider it worthy of mention at all. So if the lobby doesn't cover the NHS properly, well, then the political offering of a newspaper won't cover the NHS properly. And if the political bit of the newspaper won't cover the NHS properly, then the news desks won't want to lead on it all the time. So don't ask yourself, why isn't this cutting through? Be surprised it's had as much cut through as it has had. That's in no small part because of the historic strikes being carried out by the Royal College of Nursing, uh, the strikes on the cards uh, by junior doctors and by paramedics as well. But don't don't mistake that kind of uh, paucity of media coverage for it not being on people's minds. So the NHS is the single biggest employer in this country. Even if you don't work for the NHS, you probably have contact with somebody who does, who will have stories about being run ragged, really stressed, having a shitty working environment, um, not being able to do their job to the best of their ability because of the limitations on resources and staffing capacity. And, you know, quite a few of you are going to know people whose mental health has been affected. And even if you are, I don't know, maybe the like 1% of people who doesn't know anybody who works for the NHS, the likelihood is, is that before you know it, either you or somebody close to you will have to interact with the NHS in some way. Because even if you go private, you still have to go through the NHS A&E system before you can get swept up into your lovely booper bed or whatever it is. Um, so everybody has to interact with it at some point. And that fear, that fear of not getting adequate care, I think it is ticking around at, at the backs of people's minds. Um, and you, you, you mentioned you know that it's bad when um, emergency workers in the NHS are are reporting high rates of depression and anxiety and stress. And unfortunately, tragically, this is a picture which is being replicated across the public sector. And that's because the underfunding of the public sector as a whole has increased the pressure on every single aspect of the public sector. And these things intersect. They have these kind of infinite rippling effects. So let's take, for instance, uh, child poverty. Child poverty means you've got more kids coming into school uh, hungry, uh, more kids coming into school with their clothes unwashed. So teachers have to take it up. You've got more kids who are in need of child protection plans. But, oh, no, uh, social services has been... Uh, woefully underfunded. And in fact, the most deprived councils have experienced the worst funding cuts compared to the richer ones. So you've got an increased need for child protection services and decreased capacity. Um, same with teachers. They have got more expectations on them than ever in terms of the roles they're supposed to take on, but they're having to compensate for kids not being fed at home, kids' clothes not being washed at home, kids who come from troubled backgrounds or who are in need of care not being able to get adequate care from social services unless or until it gets really bad. Social services isn't, isn't able to do things like rehome kids and their families if they're in danger, either from um, an abusive relationship or something like gang violence. What does that mean? It means you get more violent crime. Um, all of these things have an impact on the health service because you've broadly got a crisis of poverty making people less healthy, plus an aging population. And then you combine that with underfunding. So do you see what I mean? It's like this horrible chain reaction that just keeps feeding back on itself. And so lots of people I speak to who are working in the public sector, whether it's teaching, whether it's uh, child protection, or whether it's the NHS are saying, 
I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't day in, day out, uh, watch people suffer because I can't get them the care that they need. I just can't do it. Next story. Imagine you're a tenant. A lot of you probably are. And imagine you're in a dispute with a landlord. Then one night, there's a knock at the door. It seems to be the police and they're apparently working for your landlord. Unimaginable, right? Well, not really. SNK Property Management are a London-based enforcement agency. That means bailiffs to normal people like you and me. Amongst other things, they're tasked with evicting tenants. Now, bailiffs are not legally allowed to enter your home without your permission. But Navarra Media can reveal that SNK agents seem to be going to extraordinary lengths to get that permission, including dressing up like police officers. On the evening of 10th of February, Daniela Gergenshoi was surprised to find what she thought were police officers at her door. As this image from their website shows, they wore stab-proof vests, uniforms, radios, body cams. They looked like a private militia. And they drove white vans covered in official warnings and fluorescent police-style trim. Now, despite their trappings, these men were private bailiffs. Navarra reports this. Their firm, SNK Property Enforcement, had come on behalf of their landlord to remove single mother, Gergen Shoyo, and her five children, five children, telling her they were trespassing, even though she was the legal tenant of the property. I was at work and only my kids were at home. They said these people were there and who'd put their leg in the door and tried to force their way in, she told Navarra Media. I said they should wait until I get home, but they said it was fine as my oldest son was there, but he doesn't speak good English. After hurrying back from work, she says she was told by officers from SNK that she had to vacate the property. The attempted eviction wasn't legal, but it was only after a tense two-hour standoff that the bailiffs left. John Luke Bolton is a caseworker with Safer Renting, who sent a team to help Daniela deal with the bailiffs. He told Navarra this. Even our team found it hard to tell the difference. They were dressed up in an outfit that completely resembled a police officer's uniform. If you're dressing up to look like a police officer, which they clearly are, they're going the whole way by saying you are a police officer and people don't have an understanding of how evictions work, well, you can imagine many scenarios when people would just leave. It's an intimidation tactic, both because the police are quite a frightening institution because it's trying to trick people. But the cases I've been involved in, where SNK came along, it's been tenants of the property that were there lawfully. And the chances are they would have been evicted if we didn't get involved. Now, Daniela's wasn't the only case where SNK agents turned up resembling police officers. George, a pseudonym, withheld rent from his landlord after years of being housed in unsanitary and frankly disgusting conditions. Navarra Media reports this. The rotating cast of problems has been never-ending for George, who gave a pseudonym to avoid repercussions over the last two years. His landlord regularly failed to fix broken windows or shoddy plumbing. Massive cracks even began appearing in the walls. A locked upstairs room in the house he shared with several other tenants had a dead pigeon and its nest in a sink rotting inside it for two years that was never cleaned up as the stench spread through the house. The property was on an electricity prepayment meter, he said, and the cost was supposed to be included in the rent. However, George and his wife and his two-year-old daughter had to navigate weekly power cuts as property managers routinely topped it up with too little money. 
often lasting 10 hours at a time, the cuts and constant darkness badly impacted his health and worsened his wife's depression. Soon after, he began withholding the rent. Then SNK turned up. The article continues. The landlord sent me this bailiff. He told me, I can write off all your debt, but you need to leave the house or we go to the court, George said. But he said, if we go to court, I'd be blacklisted. They look like the police, he said. Eventually, George chose the option of court, smart man, and rejected the offer put by SNK. He said he's still waiting for SNK to file paperwork in court. When asked if he thought SNK were trying to intimidate him, he said, of course they were. Now, SNK isn't shy about revealing the police-adjacent uniforms of its agents. This image is from their own website. It shows their canine unit, which the company describes like this. Dog handlers provide the most effective level of canine security protection with a roving, visible presence, constant vigilance, and ultimate psychological deterrent. Here's another from their website. At first glance, you have to ask yourself, do these look like private bailiffs to you? Let's end with this video from their own TikTok account. Don't mess with the best. Ash, this story is just jaw-dropping, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying. Those guys are clearly dressed up like police officers. I know that there is a veil of plausible deniability. They don't identify themselves as police officers, but they have all the trappings, all the colorings, and even the canine accessories. So that for the untrained eye, and even the trained eye, because we make our judgments based on, you know, split second impressions, you would think that you would be in danger of being arrested and put in jail if you stand up for, for yourself. If you stand up for your rights, if you don't immediately comply. So I would think that there should at least be a criminal investigation here uh, from impersonation of a police officer, because even if you don't say it, if you're dressing up your vans like that, you're dressing up in stab proof vests, you're wearing the boots, uh, you know, you've got body cams on. Um, what else are you doing? What else are you doing? Um, sadly, however, uh, S and K or whatever they're called uh, can probably be quite confident that there won't be a criminal investigation. And simply that's because there is um, a total lack of enforcement when it comes to eviction and bad landlord issues. Um, even though uh, one in 10 tenants report having been the victims of illegal behavior by their landlord, that's not even uh, accounting those who have been the subject of illegal uh, behavior by bailiffs, the police have only pursued, I believe it was two cases uh, of, of illegal behavior. So you can be fairly confident that if you want to be a nasty bastard, if what you want to do is, uh, you know, flagrantly breach your contract, if you want to keep extracting money, if you want to be able to pick on and immiserate the, some of the most vulnerable people in our society, become a landlord because no one is going to come looking for you. You can be fairly safe uh, that the cops aren't going to step in. And you know what? Even if you get taken to court and you lose a small sum of money, you can always just rent out another property and do it all over again. This is just such an extraordinary story to me, and it just shows how little 
politicians and the police do not care if you're a renter. You, you basically aren't, it's quite obvious to me, you're not treated like most people under the law. Certainly not like a, a middle-class homeowner. These guys are going around London, possibly other places too. I think they're impersonating police officers. I don't know the, the, the technical legal details of that, but I, it's, that would be a, a logical inference to me. But more than that, they, they resemble a private militia. I mean, I don't know the law around that either. But groups of people going around making threats, there's a term for that in the law. It's called violent disorder. It's not legal. Uh, and I really do have to question the legality of this, and I hope something happens with it. But like you said, Ash, I mean, it's just not that high on the radar of politicians. Uh, you can read more about that piece over at navarromedia.com. Uh, it's such an interesting story. I found it gripping for all the wrong reasons. The link to the article is in the YouTube description box below. Next story. Think of the Daily Mail. Does the phrase reliable news source spring to mind? I didn't think so. But now they've outdone themselves. The story begins with this headline. I was frozen to the spot in shock. It was said to intimidate. How a friendly chat in the ladies of a London pub turned menacing and plunged a Tory councillor, 22, into the clash between trans rights and women's safety. The article is written by this woman. Ruby Sampson is a Tory councillor for the ward of Cockfosters in London. She was at an event at the Marquis of Granby pub in Westminster last Wednesday when she needed to use the toilet. Here's what Sampson says happened next. Before heading home after a pleasant evening, I went to the ladies' loo, which has two cubicles. I emerged from mine at the same time as the woman next door, who at about six foot tall, towered over me. She wore a skimpy top, which made her shoulders seem bigger, and she spoke with a strikingly deep voice. A trans woman. The lavatory was cramped, and I had to stand directly behind her while waiting to use the wash basin. I can't deny I was a bit scared, shocked rather. There was a sense of novelty. What would she be like? Well, we had quite a nice chat. Not exactly girly, but friendly. I thought, this is going well. I'm handling the situation fine. I didn't treat her any differently. Why would I? We spoke about the paucity of loo paper, the dreadful taps, and temperamental hand dryer. It was as she moved the door to leave that it happened. I remarked that we had no choice but to awkwardly shake our hands dry. And she turned to me and replied, I'm going to wipe my hands on my penis. With that, she disappeared. I'm going to wipe my hands on my penis. What does that even mean? It seems strikingly implausible, even to me. But that didn't stop the Daily Mail from running a whole story on the basis of one person say so, and letting its author draw some pretty grim conclusions. Samson goes on. Now, I was frozen to the spot in shock. There is no doubt in my mind that this was a threat of sorts. Why would you assert the fact that you had a penis in a female single-sex space? I felt like I had been flashed as the penis image was put in my mind by her announcement. It was said to intimidate. The cloak's proximity made it much scarier still. What if she turned violent? It would be 10 minutes before my friends realized I was missing. Hey, Ruby, it could have been an hour, who knows? So we started from a strange comment attributed to a trans woman who was a total stranger, and we've ended up in the middle of a fantasy of intimidation, threats, and even violence. Now, these are pretty strong associations to make, and they're published in a national newspaper without any sources or witnesses to back the accounts up. You'd think this is basic journalism, apparently not. And none of us would be any the wiser about any of this were it not for this woman. 
This is a Twitter user called Sophie from Mars. She's also an established streamer and video essayist with over 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. She posted her own accounts of what happened on social media. I went to the Brianna J vigil outside the Department for Education the other day, Wednesday, and then we, about eight friends, went to a pub that we haven't been to before in the Westminster area. Super Tory, weird anti-Semitic conversation going on between some dudes outside. At one point, I went to the bathroom upstairs and the ladies' room was absolutely tiny and just generally a bit shit. The stall I went in had no loo roll. So when I stepped out, I had to say to the cis woman who was coming out of the other stall that I needed to go in there for that. Because I'd had to talk to her in order to explain that, we made kind of awkward small talk about the bathroom in general as we both washed our hands and then she said something like, we'll have to shake. And I paused for a sec to understand she meant to dry our hands. And then I said, oh, I'll just wipe my hands on my jeans. Oh, I'll just wipe my hands on my jeans. That makes a lot more sense. So much sense, you suspect it's almost certainly true. Now, we're not saying that Samson is deliberately lying. In fact, Sophie had a better explanation for what happened. Just taking some time to process that I've been possibly anonymously sexually harassed in a national newspaper because this Tory dumbass couldn't think about anything else when she saw a trans woman besides Dick. Pretty weird. It would be bad enough if Samson had just vented her transphobia in a right-wing rag. But she went even further by getting politicians involved. Samson has written to Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch and the letter pretty much replicates the Daily Mail article, but I'll read just this bit out. Samson writes, and I quote, how society is progressing, I don't feel safe going to a female bathroom alone. I fear that these incidents will become more and more frequent with no way of having any consequences for the improper use of single sex spaces. Yes, perhaps completely fictitious incidents like this will become more frequent, but that won't be the fault of trans women. Ash, this is a very peculiar story. And actually, I, I think it's so useful to have alongside what we just spoke about with the bailiffs, because you have people who are on the receiving end of extraordinary intimidation from private militia. They have no voice in public life. And yet somebody wants to make these bizarre insinuations and and character assassinations, and let's be, let's be charitable on the basis that she misheard what somebody said, and yet that ends up in a national newspaper and has input from national politicians. What does that say about politics in this country? Well, I think it tells you exactly what Bernie Sanders discussed on, I believe it was Sophie Ridge this Sunday, which is people should be angry. People should feel scared because their rights are being eroded. They're being made poorer. And in order to sustain that injustice, you have an incredible use of violence, both by agents of the state and also agents of capital like bailiffs. But instead of that anger being directed towards its true and honest source, it's being misdirected towards people who are just as vulnerable as you, if not in some instances more vulnerable. So migrants, asylum seekers, trans people, gay people, people of colour, that is where your anger is being directed. And in order to sustain a moral panic like that, particularly when very little risk is posed by transgender women, particularly when you compare the risk posed by transgender women to the risk posed by cisgender men, um, you end up having to have an astonishingly low threshold for what constitutes an 
article-worthy atrocity. So let's just take this story step by step. Number one, uh, Councillor Ruby Sampson of Cockfosters Ward says that even to hear the word penis is kind of like a psychic flashing. Put the image of a penis in your brain. Well, look, if the very word penis is that distressing for you, I would recommend standing for a different ward, one not named Cockfosters. All right, just a word of advice. Secondly, if I had thought to myself, did someone just say this incredibly bizarre thing? I would go, what other words does this sound like? Hmm. Is it, I'll just wipe my hands on my penis? Now, I don't have a penis, but I don't think that that absorbent, Aaron. Or would it be something that sounds maybe a little bit like penis, like jeans? I would probably go for that. And if I was a journalist choosing whether or not to report on this story, to publish this story, to edit this story, I would go, okay, is there any... Um, is, is is there any corroboration of this? I mean, this sounds like a really, really bizarre thing to happen. Yeah. Um, so I feel I feel incredibly sorry for Sophie from Mars. I know that she wasn't named in the article, but I think that it's pretty atrocious that she's had to, mm-hmm. you know, she she's had to do like a multiple tweet thread explaining what is just an innocuous interaction in a bathroom not for her own sake because obviously nobody would have known it was her in the first place um but for the sake of her community for the sake of the marginalized demographic of which she is a part because the Mm -hmm. more you have these stories um which are based on either a flimsy pretext or a totally made up one in the public sphere the more heightened the risk of violence or really horrible, regressive, reactionary policymaking. Um, so even if you're not named, you know, you must feel a sort of duty to put the record right, even though you're then stepping into a limelight and at risk of all this horrendous abuse by online transphobes. I really, really do feel for her. Um, and I also, I also think that there is something really specific about transphobia that I've been trying to get my head around for a long time, and it's this idea of body horror. So because the body of the transgender person, and in particular the transgender woman, is constructed into such a figure of uh, disgust and horror and repulsion, I think it genuinely scrambles people's brains a bit. And it means that you can't just have a normal encounter with somebody of the kind that you would have pretty much every single day. Uh, Like, oh yeah, there's no blue roll in there um, without going, oh my God, what is under your clothes? And that's not something that I think very often about anybody. I don't think it about cisgender women. I don't think about transgender women. don't think about cisgender men, of course, unless they're very good looking. Um, but this emphasis on body horror, like it, it's so profoundly antisocial and it, it, it makes women, um, it, it mischaracterizes us and it kind of smears us like we're these, you know, prurient busybodies who, you know, are constantly thinking about what's in somebody's trousers when we're not. I mean, the other thing that comes up a lot is, you know, oh, well, what about, what about, um, you know, there can't be penises in public toilets. Well, the thing is, is that I don't, I don't see anybody's genitals in a public toilet. If I see anybody's genitals, regardless of whether it's a penis or a vagina, something has gone very, very wrong. Something has gone very, very wrong. You know, the ladies' toilet is not this kind of like mystic bacchanal where we've all got like, you know, 
a breast out and like you know massaging wombs all over the place like you go into your club your cubicle you do your business you wash your hands you go maybe you make a comment on the fact the hand dryer doesn't work that's it um but the transphobic moral panic has us examining these really banal details of our everyday lives and trying to make us afraid and unreasonable um and that's not freeing for women there are very real things uh, in this world that we should be scared of and concerned about but you know let's at least distinguish between the made-up shit and the real shit just at the very least for my sanity final story for you quickly before we finish like many on the left i'm always eager to highlight how britain's newspapers are owned by right-wing billionaires you might have noticed less frequently mentioned however is that broadcast media is kind of filled with people who are new labor so the media reduces all politics to two options, reheated Blairism or free market conservatism. I've written about this in a new piece you can read up on navarramedia.com, link in the description, and I find the topic genuinely interesting. Liberals on the left complain about the conservative press, and they're right, while conservatives complain about liberals and TV and radio, and they're also kind of right. You know, if you had somebody on the right, like Joe Brand, threatening to throw battery acid at a left-wing politician, that would, I think, upset many people who I generally agree with. There is clearly a bit of a double standard going on. But nevertheless, this thing is strange, but for a while, in a weird way, it was a balanced fair system. The right attacked the left, and the left attacked the right. That was until someone like Jeremy Corbyn turns up. And it was during the Jeremy Corbyn years that this homeostatic system where the press is conservative and broadcast various shades of new labor broke down as both relentlessly attacked the opposition, often more so than the government. Now, for socialists, this raise, it raises important questions. While confected hysteria was predictable from the Sun, Times and Mail, it was less so from the BBC, LBC and Sky. After a decisive leadership victory in 2016, few would have predicted that anti-Corbyn pundits and has-been Blairite MPs would end up squatting in TV studios until they got their way. Ash, you're one of the very few figures on the left who appears a lot in broadcast media. What do you think of my hypothesis? Yeah, well, I, I really agree with it. I think that the point about reheated Blairism or, you know, conservative free market capitalism. It's also about the extent to which Blair allowed himself to be disciplined by the right-wing press. So he spent a good deal of time before the 1997 general election courting uh, Rupert Murdoch. He appeared to speak at a uh, News Corp conference uh, where he was introduced by Rupert Murdoch. And there's kind of a quid pro quo. One is I'll leave your interest alone as long as you lend me your support in 1997. The Conservative Party are decrepit. They're on the way out. Uh, here's someone who doesn't pose much of an ideological threat. You can, you can see how this kind of uh, compact is reached. But then there is another thing which then goes on throughout uh, the Blair Premiership, which is where the right-wing tabloids lead Blair and his government would follow. So you had that when it came to dictating the government line on asylum seekers. Uh, they had that when it came to antisocial behavior and ASBOs, um, when it came to uh, clamping down on welfare recipients. These were all themes which were, you know, really being uh, merrily played by the right-wing press and Tony Blair and his cabinet dutifully followed. Whereas 
while the right-wing press did try and operate in order to discipline Jeremy Corbyn without and out attacks, you're a terrorist sympathizer, you're a horrendous racist, you want to expropriate everybody's gardens. The idea that they would be leading on policy in the same way, well, they simply couldn't be confident of it in the same way. So I think that that explains uh, the state of the tabloids. But I think that for many uh, within you know, broadly liberal institutions like the Guardian and the Observer, and also institutions where you've got a lot of people who are broadly liberal, uh, you know, centre left, centre right, working like the BBC. Um, their contacts were now worthless. You know, you've got this insurgent movement who comes along, and it doesn't matter if you're taking, you know, Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper to dinner every other week. Your contacts are totally worthless. So the rise of something new, something which drew its legitimacy from the people who it was supposed to directly benefit, i.e. ordinary people, students, tenants, um, that threatened the status of the people who thought that they were kingmakers. And that's why you had an alignment of interests, I think, between those uh, journalists and, you know, the Labour right who themselves had been, uh, you know, demoted a couple of pegs because there was a new kind of leadership. Yeah, I think for me, I'm trying to have a structural sort of assessment of the differences between Corbyn and Starmer. And, and I do feel like there's almost like relief across broad swathes of the, of the media class that you do have somebody like Starmer back in charge of the Labour Party. That's really because they want reheated Blairism um, and they get to bash the Tories and kind of defend their guy. And, you know, I, I can't help but think about the Emily Maitlis monologue about Dominic Cummings, much of which I agreed with, by the way. But can you imagine a right-wing journalist or just a BBC journalist admonishing an advisor for a Labour prime minister like that at the top of BBC Newsnight? It would be implausible. So I think it's important to say when conservatives or people on the right make these pronouncements about the state of, of, of legacy media, they're not wrong. And the point is, for us as socialists, is that actually, you look at print, we're not represented. You look at broadcast, we're not represented. Uh, and when I say that, you know, uh, the left, I mean the sort of the liberal, the liberal left. And that broke down with, with Jeremy Corbyn. Ash, thank you so much for joining me on this evening's show. We packed a hell of a lot in. Only you can do quite that much talking, but I have to say, Ash, good, good talking. It was high, quali high quality talking. I learned a lot in 60 minutes. That sounds like the kind of thing that someone would say at parents' evening, which is code for like, she will not shut up. But as ever, Aaron, I am delighted to join you and even more delighted to establish that penises are not absorbent. Well, mine most certainly isn't, but uh, you know, I don't like to generalize. Uh, thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, my name's Aaron Bastani. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.